0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Middle East, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Julian Vedeman. Today we'll be talking to historian Augustin Jomier about his new book, Islam, Reforme et Colonisation, Une Histoire de Libadisme en Algérie, 1882 1962. Augustin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Julian. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to share my work uh, with you and with an English-speaking audience.
0: Well, we're uh, very glad to, to have you here. Before we start the discussion, I wonder if you could tell us about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, I'm a social and cultural historian of modern North Africa. Uh, I'm associate professor at uh, INALCO, uh, which is the Uh, French National uh, Institute for Oriental Languages and Civilizations, uh, based in Paris. Uh, So this is where I teach. Um, I teach the early modern and modern history of uh, North Africa and the the Middle East um, at the the Arabic studies department. I was uh, first trained uh, as a historian of uh, early modern Europe and only came uh, pretty late to study North Africa uh, and Islamic history. So back in 2008, when I took a a break from my studies and volunteered in Algiers, so the the capital city of Algeria, uh, and worked there in a university library. Uh, Working and living a year in Algiers, uh, so a city that had just uh, emerged from 10 years of uh, terrible uh, turmoil, Learning the basis of uh, Arabic, crisscrossing the country, all this was really a funding experience from which uh, most of my research uh, questions flowed. I was uh, particularly mesmerized uh, by a region, uh, so the Mzab, uh, so mesmerized that I decided to take uh, this region as a case studies in order to answer the questions uh, developed during this first year in Algiers. Uh, So that's how the the PhD idea uh, started. Uh, Maybe I can tell a word about the Mzab. Uh, I think it will make things clearer. Uh, So the Mzab Valley, it's a a really fascinating case study, since uh, it is home to a Berber-speaking and Ibadi community. Uh, In a nutshell, Ibadis are uh, members of an understudied Islamic sect uh, and the only surviving uh, members of the Harijites' uh, movement, uh, so from the 7th-9th century. Um, Apart from the Mzab, two regions are influenced by Ibadism in North Africa, the island of Jabba in the south of Tunisia and the Jebel Nefusa region west of uh, Libya. Uh, Ibadism plays also a significant role in the history of uh, the Sultanate of Oman, where the majority of the population uh, belongs to Ibadism. Um, so I've been working on a specific region, but a region that was linked with other parts of the, of the Middle East. And uh, one can say that the, this um, Ibadi network work, worked like an archipelago, Um, And so this is both a a very local case and a transnational history. The book uh, we will talk about is a revised version of my PhD thesis, and it examines how debates uh, initiated by uh, reformist Ibadi uh, Islamic scholars, ulama, uh, transformed uh, Muslim Algerian society during the colonial period. Uh, It is based on several field works, in the Mzab uh, and elsewhere in Algeria. And it brings together two fields that are often uh, studied uh, separately. So, the, on the one hand, the history of uh, modern Islam, and on the other hand, the history of uh, colonial Algeria and North Africa. Um, I show how Ibadi Rolama have, uh, have uh, appropriated the, the transnational discourse of Islamic reformism. Uh, and used it to to take hold of local religious and political uh, leadership. Um, Yeah, that's basically the the pitch.
0: Wonderful. So the Mazab, uh, just to come back to that part of your response, uh, the Mazab is a region 600 kilometers away from Algeria's capital city, and located in the northern Sahara, it, it's quite far from the major cities where most historians of North Africa do their archival research. What was your experience of doing fieldwork and research in this region?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, indeed, it's quite, quite far away. So most of the historians do their archival work in, uh, in the major uh, Algerian cities, so north of the country, uh, in cities like Algiers, so Wahran, um, the cities where the mass, vast majority of French settlers lived back in the, the colonial period. Uh, I decided to take a step aside and to look at uh, Algerian history So as I write from the south, um, because I found in this uh, northern Sahara a fascinating case study on the very rich environment for ed- undertaking uh, research. So yeah, it's, it's far away from Algiers, but uh, fieldwork there was not so complicated, nor extraordinary. Um, and I think historians should uh, be more numerous to, to work in the, in the Sahara. Uh, so of course, no, it, it, in, it's, it involves more time, of course, than a classical archive work in the, I don't know, in any national archive. Um, it's a bit remote, and what needs to, to build uh, human relations, mutual trust, um, since the, most of the material is in uh, private hands. Uh, but it's really worth the, the, the effort, um, because the, from the 15th century onwards, uh, a, a very important literate culture developed in this region, as I think in the the rest of the the Sahara, which led to the foundation of several libraries, uh, often uh, endowed libraries. Uh, So you can find there lots of manuscript collections, and uh, one says that uh, there are about 40 private libraries and archives uh, in Mzab, in which uh, 13,000 manuscripts are preserved. So there is still a lot to do. Uh, These collections are held either by the the, the families or the heirs of uh, Islamic scholars or run by associations dedicated to the Ibadi Heritage Preservation. Uh, And really, with very few exceptions, uh, generally uh, these libraries or, well, the people who who have these libraries have been really welcoming. Uh, first, as a member of a literate uh, class, they, they really value uh, scholarly work. And also, they are really eager to have a foreigner uh, speak about Ibadism uh, uh, and about their community, since they, they often feel uh, marginalized or, uh, well, they are aware that no one knows about Ibadism, so they are happy that uh, French uh, PhD students came they, they were I think they, they were not uh, offended. And actually um, two or three uh, well uh, precisely three heritage preservation associations really made my life easier. Uh, they have cataloged many libraries, they sometimes they di- digitalized uh, manuscript collections. Uh, so they are very they are very helpful. And uh, and in this fair, fairly small environment, you get easily to know everyone, so it's it, it was all right. Um, doing fieldwork, there was also uh, well, it was a strong experience too, um, because the the, the fieldwork uh, in Zab offered unmatched opportunities to to think of the enduring effect of the. Of the colonial period, of the, the religious history I was studying. Uh, so, for example, uh, the major category in the religious, uh, back in time, uh, in the, let's say, in the interwar period, was this category of reformist. We will talk about it, I think. Uh, but it's interesting to see that this category still prevails there. So, uh, kids go to a, either a reformist or a conservative school. As in the 30s, so, uh, this is a very lively heritage. Uh, it also gave me the opportunity to take part to commemorations, to, to read uh, local uh, historiography, to scrutinize the memory of the colonial period and what people there um, uh, intend by a reform movement, so Harakal uh, Islahiyya. So the least I can say that it gave a very strong... Um, Human uh, emotional dimension to do to the project, so I'm I'm very grateful for that.
0: That's a very rich uh, overview of of um, some aspects of your field work. I wanted to jump right into the some of the processes your book talks about and ask a historical question. So, broadly speaking, how did the process of French colonialism process of colonization take place in the Mzab?
1: Um, So the the Mzab Valley is an interesting point to think of the diversity of the colonial experiences of Algerians. Um, So the, as you know, the French army first took Algiers in 1830, and it was the beginning of a very long and uh, brutal, but also uncertain uh, conquest process. Uh, so, the interest for the South uh, only grew later, uh, in the late 40s. And uh, so, first of all, in 1853, French governor required from the seven cities of the Mzab um, that they sign a submission treaty, uh, which preserved formally their uh, internal uh, autonomy. And it's only in 1882 that the French army took over really the region. And set up a direct administration. This is the was the starting point of my book. Um, so, uh, the, the administration actually was very different from the north. You know, in the north of Algeria was uh, a fictitious extension of the metropole, divided into three departments. Um, whereas the Sahara, uh, including the Mzab, remained unt- under military rule till the late uh, 1950s. So as a, as a consequence, uh, the situation was quite different from the north, so almost no French settled there. Uh, colonial rule was, uh, consisted of a few French uh, officers uh, who had exorbitant power, uh, and who were assisted by uh, Algerian auxiliary uh, troops, soldiers. And in Mbzab also, uh, local Ibadi notables who acted as uh, intermediaries between the, the local population and the administration. So, so, that, uh, yeah. uh, so from 1882 onwards, the, the, these French officers took over local institutions and uh, they, they diverted them uh, they, and they destabilized uh, the, the social uh, balance there, especially the religious field. Uh, so the, the, the Mzab had developed during the medieval and the early modern period an, an interesting and original uh, set of institutions, so often uh, inspired by, by Ibadi. Uh, uh, um, so each of the seven zab cities was ruled by two councils, a council of uh, Islamic scholars, the Halkat al azaba and another made of um, notables, the, the Jama'ah. Um, so the, the, the French uh, uh, how I say, uh, invested the Jama, making it a, a local council, uh, and the kind of uh, intermediary for their rule, but they marginalized uh, the ulema, the, the scholars. So the French conquest called into question the scholars' monopoly over uh, lots of aspects, uh, the, the knowledge, transmission, um, Islamic law. Uh, and at the same time, it's, uh, the, the advent of the French uh, colonial rule strengthened the Ibadina table's power. Uh, over the population. So, this destabilization, uh, it's also the starting p- point of the book. I think it plays uh, a very important role in the, uh, well, in the rise in the uh, later of uh, reformism, which is a kind of answer to this destabilization.
0: Okay, so since you mentioned uh, these notable figures, is sort of Mazabi scholarly elite i wanted to ask you a bit more about uh, some of these personalities there are several religious scholars who seem to loom very large in the in the history of reform in the mazab could you tell us about some of these figures and how they appear in your argument
1: yeah um, so my, my book uh, tells the history of four generations of ibadi scholars uh, so from 1882 to uh, 1962 um, and uh, following their, their path allows me to trace the changes uh, in the role and the cultural figures of Islamic scholars in North African uh, societies, uh, not only in the, in the Mzab, so they, they could play a role as religious erudites, teachers, cultural brokers, political leaders, and, uh, and really the, it, this figure of the alim, the ulama, um, so there is a there is a word, but the 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 cultural the social uh, reality it describes uh, really changes over over time. So that's what I try to to show uh, with all this, uh, as you say, the prosopographical dimension of the book. So maybe I can speak quickly about uh, a few of these um, uh, figures, with, which will make I think this uh, generation idea clearer. So the book starts with the the figure of Mohammed Atfayish, who died uh, in 1914, um, who is really the the main Ibadi scholar of the modern period. He's revered as such uh, in the Mzab. Um, He's very central for the Ibadi law. He he wrote a very large number of books, more than hundreds. and he said in local uh, memory and historiography to have been the, the first modern scholar of the to have been the first reformist in the valley. Um, I prefer to characterize him as a figure of transition, uh, a transition between the early modern Islamic culture and the modern one. So because he, I said transition because he, he shares uh, features from the, from the old early modern culture. So the fact that he he wrote, he wrote only uh, commentaries or poetry, um, very long works. He uh, specialised in fiqh and hadith. Um, he, yeah, really, he, he, uh, he used a lot of uh, way to produce and transmit knowledge that uh, the next generation gave up then. But at the same time, uh, he's very interesting also because he na- navigates extremely well the, the, the tremendous changes brought by the 19th century. Uh, so he's the first Ibadi scholars uh, making use of the printing press, so mainly lithographs, but still. He he, he really took advantage also of the political reform uh, which, um, which the, the sultan of Zanzibar and Oman, so uh, Ibadi sultans, undertook. And uh, their wealth uh, allowed them to sponsor Atfayesh, and he was also quite uh, successful in navigating the the French conquest of the Mzab. Uh, since he became an intermediary for the, the French Orientalists, who define, uh, who were in charge of defining the uh, French politics there. So, um, as such, he's really he's really a, he's a key figure. Uh, not so much because he, his work would be uh, really the, the achievement of Ibadisot, uh, but because he he's really key to understand the, um, the passage between the early modern and the modern uh, period. So after him, um, uh, so the, the generation who comes next uh, enters uh, the scene uh, in the 1910s, 1920s, uh, so I can think of two scholars, uh, Ibrahim Ben Isa, and uh, so who is famous as Abu Yaqdan, and Ibrahim Atfayesh, Fayesh, who who was a grand nephew of uh, Muhammad Fayesh. Uh, so they both were born in the 1880s, and they died so in the 60s, 70s, the 1960s, 70s. So they are. Um, they are also in, They are interesting to to understand the beginning of uh, the reform process because they are uh, educators. So they both uh, were involved in uh, setting up uh, uh, students Ibadi students' mission in Tunis, uh, and they they, re- they reformed, let's say, the, the curriculum of Ibadi studies, and so they, they were very important for that, and. Um, they are also interesting, especially Muhammad. Uh, sorry, uh, Abu Ishaq. So Ibrahim At fayesh since he was also um, uh, so he studied in Tunis and was then exiled in Cairo. In Cairo and both in Tunis and in Cairo, he developed uh, important links with uh, Sunni, uh, with other uh, scholars and. Um, uh, Activists. So, for example, in Tunis, he was close to the Tunisian Destour, so the um, well, the first nationalist uh, political party in Tunisia. And then in Cairo, he was very close to Mohibeddin El Khatib and uh, all this um, milieu that uh, Henri Lozia coins as the, the Neo Salafiya uh, movement. Uh, so, he, he was very instrumental uh, in. Uh, defining an Ibadi reform, but also defining an Ibadi literary canon through the the use of the printing press. So it's close to what Ahmed El Shamsi shows in his uh, uh, recently published book. Um, And so these two figures who developed uh, new ways of thinking in Tunis and Cairo had uh, I've had an Im- important um, impact uh, in Zab, I mean, in, in Algeria in general. So, uh, Abou Kulan went back there and uh, he opened a printing press in Algiers. He published several uh, newspapers. And they, so both of them pushed for social development and the, res- the restoration of Islam to its uh, supposed former purity. Uh, A third generation um, uh, appears in the 1930s in the Mzab Valley itself uh, and implements this uh, program of reform, this reform program. Uh, The main figure there is Ibrahim Bayoud, who was born in uh, 1899 and died in 1981. Uh, He was also an educator, like uh, the, the two previous figures. But he was also a great preacher uh, and a very charismatic uh, and political uh, leader. So he made use of the, the rhetoric of reform to claim a public role in the community, but also within a colonial public space. Um, with Bayoud, we also enter a period of uh, important confrontation in the Mzab between uh, reformists and their opponents who claim to be uh, conservatives uh, so religious clerks public figures who rejected the the ongoing changes that the reformists were uh, uh, implementing uh, so the in the 30s 40s even the 50s the, the both uh, groups compete for, with each other for positions within the colonial government or Outside in the community, so in the long term, Bayoud and the reformists uh, were successful in implementing their vision. That's uh, well, the, the book tells this story, um, and this is largely because they successfully entered the colonial electoral system uh, after nineteen forty-eight. So Bayoud becomes the uh, the only representative of the community in the colonial institutions. So that's what he achieved. And maybe just a word about the fourth generation. Uh, I, I I I don't speak about it that much in the book, but they are interesting because this is the generation who has to deal with the, the independence uh, of the country after 1962. So this generation is mainly made of students of uh, Sheikh Bayud, and uh, they are the one who. Uh, take care of his heritage after the independence, and also the one who tried to, uh, to sink uh, the belonging of Mzab in the Algerian, uh, Sunni, and Arab nations. So, uh, so that they're, really, they're really interesting. So as you see from the end of the 19th century till the independence, the, the social, the political, the cultural role of scholars and the nature of their knowledge uh, shifted dramatically.
0: Right, that's a very clear way of understanding your your argument across those four generations. Your your book really has something to offer to a range of different uh, scholarly literatures. One is the study of French colonialism in North Africa. So this is of course an extensive and growing body of literature, focusing above all on Algeria, France's most important colony. How would you situate your book in scholarship on French Empire in North Africa?
1: As you say, yeah, it's a it's booming, a booming field. Uh, maybe it has been booming for two decades, I think. So my my book proposes a, a dual move uh, from the historiographical uh, prevailing framework. Uh, although I'm not, I'm not the only one. We I think we are uh, we're, only, we're quite uh, numerous scholars to try to to move the the lines. Uh, so first of all. Uh, I have two, two points, but so first of all, I try to focus uh, on a, as I said, on a marginal uh, region in the Sahara and doing this so, I read the history of Algeria from outside national and colonial perspectives. So the, the classical historiography of on colonial Algeria is um, it's very understandable, focused on the national uh, frame, the Algerian frame, and on the relationship between France and its uh, former colony. In my book, I try to move beyond a national narrative and resituate Algeria in a global framework, but I do it in uh, localizing the analyze uh, and looking at the many connections uh, in, the, in the long term, in the long durée, between a small and dry valley uh, in the Sahara, and many capital cities and major intellectual hubs in the uh, Middle East region, such as Tunis, Cairo, Mecca, Medina, and so on. Um, the, another observed from the national uh, framework, uh, the intellectual exchanges uh, between the Mzar and this capital city can uh, sound a bit marginal but i think they are not uh, i think they are uh, at least uh, uh, historiographically very stimulating and important because they allow us to uncover uh, very important transregional transimperial uh, connections uh, which are uh, still underestimated when we stay uh, inside uh, nowadays algerian uh, borders so the the Studying these migrations, these exchanges, denaturalize the Algerian uh, and the colonial framework uh, by showing uh, lots of uh, other relationships uh, to space among Algerians beyond those uh, imposed by the colonial, the French rule. So I think uh, it's 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 a way, maybe one way, to reassess uh, Algerians' agency. And to understand uh, many of the, to understand dif- in a different way, many of the social, the cultural, the political changes that uh, occurred during the, the period. And maybe the, the a second move, but I'll be, I, I speak about it quickly, it's that I tried to, to use a mix of French and Arabic sources. Um, as for Arabic sources, I tried to I, I label them in, in the introduction as Islamic sources. Uh, sources written, uh, produced by uh, scholars. And so rather than focusing solely on uh, French uh, imperial uh, sources, I intend to fill the gap between, uh, between the history of uh, modern Islam and the history of uh, colonialism and uh, colonial Algeria. Uh, I think that bringing together uh, the, the two fields, the literatures of this field, looking at colonization, so from the point of view of local religious elite, uh, it opens up a window, uh, not only in the making of a religious and intellectual uh, revival, but also in, into the ways in which uh, the period, the colonial period, was experienced by colonial uh, subject, by Algerians.
0: Another literature you engage with is, of course, scholarship on Ibadism. Could you talk about your intervention in Ibadi studies?
1: Yeah so uh Ibedis studies is a it's a recent label um often uh built uh, well it appeared I think as a consequence of the investment of many uh, officials uh, governments in the in the field um, um and it's a growing it's a growing field but it's still very very small uh i would say that Most of of my colleagues uh, studying Ibadism focus on the formative, on the classical, the so called uh, classical and formative period. So, studying the the modern period is already uh, an intervention. Uh, So, with a few colleagues like uh, Amel Razal, we we depart, I think, in studying this period. Um, So, on the scholarship. On the modern period, maybe my intervention consists of two things. I or three. Uh, I try to unravel uh, the often intertwined uh, s- discourses, so uh, scholarly and local discourses. So I try to unravel Ibadi discourses and scholar discourses, uh, especially in what regards uh, nationalism, uh, because the so Alger Zabi Algern uh, framework is often uh, prev- prevailing in the in the in the scholarly work. It's hard to debunk uh, to debunk it since colonial archives are always pointing to the the so-called national resistance. Um, a second thing is that I try to think less of Iberis as uh, specific. Uh, I try not to. Only insist uh, stress on the specificities of Ibadism, uh, which is uh, well I- important in building a, a field like Ibadist studies. But uh, I try on the on the opposite to not to take these specificities for granted, uh, and I try to put them in a predominantly Sunni context in order to understand um, the social and cultural uh, making and remaking of the of the sect. Uh, And a third uh, thing, but it's really specific, is just that I've been uh, focusing on uh, competing visions on Ibadism among Ibadis, uh, among Ibadis scholars. And I study uh, largely, it's a large part of the book, their struggle, and I think that's pretty new because the the community uh, generally um, uh, prefer to give... uh, to give a very united uh, image. And so you studying the, the, the competing vision is, is not that uh, common.
0: So a question perhaps related to your last point. Several of your most interesting arguments actually concern the opponents of reformists, the, the so-called conservatives. How have you come to think about conservatives based on this work?
1: Yeah, um, so it's, it comes directly from my uh, fieldwork. Um, so when I uh, started to study the region in two thousand eight nine, I spent almost eight months there, and uh, I was struck by the, the memory of the reformist struggle in the region, uh, the memory of their public confrontation with uh, what people named there the conservatives. Uh, so reformists or the heirs of reformists uh, nowadays. Uh, were dismissing uh, conservatives as immovable, uh, as backwarded. Uh, They named them in Berber uh, "kabuya," so it's uh, pumpkin or squash, uh, to denounce their stubbornness. And uh, and back in Paris uh, after the fieldwork, so yeah, one has to go back to libraries. uh, I became aware that after this uh, very important bias in the historiography of modern Islam. Which is the the fact that this historiography, the literature, is really focused on uh, reformist actors, because they are the one who won the, who the they are the one who won the game. They are the one who used printing press, so they, we have much more sources. Um, and it's the same in Zab. So the conservative clerks refused to the to use printing press. Um, uh, but that struggle, I think, is really interesting to, to study. I wanted to challenge prevailing visions about uh, conservatives, uh, visions like, uh, like the one uh, written by Ali Murad. Uh, so Ali Murad is quite important in, in, for the, the French-speaking uh, historiography of uh, modern Islam. Uh, he's the one who wrote the article Islah Reform in the Encyclopedia of Islam, the second edition. And he, he really painted a very um, negative pictures of conservatives. And I, and I argue that we cannot uh, contrast, like he does, stagnant conservative with dynamic reformists. So I try to, to, well, first of all, to, to find the conservative speech in the sources, but also to take it seriously. Uh, even when it sounds ridiculous at first, when they refuse to use telephone or stuff like that, uh, in order to understand what was at stake, what was their rational, what was the rationality behind their discourse. So this is mainly chapter four in the book, and I try to demonstrate that. The, so those self-labelled uh, conservatives, uh, when they, for example, rejected the use of European manufactured uh, goods Technological tools uh, were not backwarded, Uh, so I try to show that they were facing the same uh, challenges as the self-label reformists. They also, well, in order to defend uh, their point point of view, they used a quite innovative legal reasoning, uh, but they primarily aimed at defining the boundaries of the Ibadi community in a time of uh, cultural anxiety. So I think that's a major difference with the reformists. And the second one is also that they try to protect uh, Ibadi legal reasoning methodology uh, by rejecting uh, borrowings from Sunni traditions. Uh, So that's... uh, Yeah, I think that's the thing I, I try to to prove, and I'm, I'm glad you, you like the argument, since it was the most painful to build, uh, <laughs> reading uh, the heated controversies between uh, reformists and, and scholars, and conservative scholars.
0: Another question in this area, you pay close attention to the transformation of the Arabic term islah, which is a crucial category for both actors and analysts. What is the importance of this argument for your study and for broader literatures on Islamic reform?
1: Um, yeah, so the, the the call for reform for Islam um, uh, was it's very important uh, in the well in the history of Ibadism in the twentieth century as in the larger history of uh, modern Islam. Uh, it's also crucial since this is a uh, central uh, concept in the local historiography. Uh, but uh, reading uh, hist- both local historiography and sometimes also uh, Western language uh, historiography, I was struck by the very loose uh, use of the term reform um, and the fact that historians tend to, to define a post-factum as reformist or reformer very heterogeneous range of uh, scholars. So in chapter two, I take inspiration from conceptual history uh, to trace the emergence of the world, the word sorry, isla, which was translated as reform, and I demonstrate uh, how it only came to be understood in Zab as a religious and social reform lately, during the interwar period. So I. Uh, show that Algerian-Ibadi scholars did not self-label as uh, reformists before the 1930s. At a local scale, um, first, the the reformists, the Muslehun, as they uh, called themselves, uh, so they used this category uh, as a self-designation in order to distinguish themselves from their opponents, that they called uh, immobile or stagnant, the, the conservatives. So this, uh, reform is a very powerful binary discursive, uh, discursive construction. And it helps, uh, it helps, sorry, the, the reformists to seize power over the Mizabi uh, community, to split, to split the community, to seize power and to legitimize it. Um, so the self-determination became really central late, lately in the late 1930s. Uh, around 1938, and I argue that one has to um, get out of the valley and to look at uh, the political scene in Algeria to understand that. Um, Because and and it shows that uh, besides uh, local actors and historiography, this uh, Ibadi use of Islam reform is very interesting to think of the modern history of uh, so-called Islamic concepts. So uh, the the intellectual, the religious uh, history of uh, Islam in the in the Middle East and North Africa is centered around this idea of Islamic reform. Um, And, uh, however, what I I try to show is that, like concepts such as Salafi and Salafism, it is often used in theological ways loosely linked to historical sources. So I draw on Henri Lozier's argument, but I also make a little move. So, um, as you know, so Henri Lozier published in 2010 an article outlining the, the shady conceptual foundations on which some aspects of Islamic intellectual history are built. So he, he debunked the, the main narratives on Salafism. And so... Some debates occurred. I, I won't recall everything, but uh, in a debate he had with uh, Frank Griffel in 2015, uh, it's interesting to see that at the heart of the debate lies an opposition with, because, between uh, emic and ethic categories. So, in the discussions, uh, the discourses of Islamic actors and Western scholars are seen as uh, bonded entities meriting. Uh, distinct analytical frameworks. And analyzing the Ibali use of Isla, I tried to overcome such opposition. Um, I tried to show that uh, the French translation of Isla as reform, which dates back to 1934, uh, played a huge role in the uh, popularization, the spread of uh, reform as a label, as a slogan, Uh, in the Ibadi discourse in the late 1930s. Um, So thanks to this translation, uh, Islah as reform, claiming to be a reformist, uh, became for Ibadi scholars a way to take part in colonial debates that were uh, occurring at at this time, and to defend their community's interest. Uh, So it allows them to fashion themselves as intermediaries of colonial uh, officials so one has to take in account into account a double context so the influence of uh, egyptian middle eastern uh, discourses on Islam, but also uh, in French, the um, the call for uh, many reforms in the context of the uh, popular front so the in 1936 sorry uh, so i show that the word islah uh, became a reformist catchword at this, at that moment uh, in conjunction with the call of political reform uh, in Algeria, and the development of uh, an imperial Orientalist expertise based on this uh, translation of uh, Islam as reform. So um, I think it uh, invites uh, scholars to, to break away with approaches that consider American um, ethic categories as bounded entities. And uh, um, I think we have to unravel that uh, intertwined uh, nature uh, when we study 20th century uh, Islam.
0: That's fascinating. Um, and uh, I think an important, uh, important argument in the literature. Another thing that impressed me about your book is that you pay more attention than many historians to the economic histories underpinning Islamic reform. So, this line of argument is especially prominent in the seventh chapter titled Merchants and the Mosque The Economic Motives for Religious Change. Talk us through the economic history of religious change in the Mazab.
1: Um, yes, t- thank you for uh, bringing this point. I, it's, uh, I cherish this point. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the, it was very interesting to, to see. So, of course, the colonial period. Uh, changed uh, dramatically the economic landscape of North Africa. So, among these uh, changes, which are also um, demographic changes, uh, one can observe the growth of uh, Ibadi workers migrants uh, in the north. So, there, there is an increasing movement of Ibadi workers from uh, the Mza, but also from Jabba in the south of uh, Tunisia, who go to big. Uh, Seaside C- uh, cities, uh, so uh, port cities. Sorry, um, and uh, later on in the interwar period, uh, many of these uh, Ibadi traders from Zab have been able to take advantage of the of the rapid uh, entry of Algeria into global capitalism, and uh, some make some of them uh, made really big money. So. Uh, Before me, prominent scholars such as uh, Ernest Gellner or Pierre Bourdieu uh, were struck by this uh, fact, and they tried, so in the 50s and 60s, to explain this uh, economic prosperity of the Ibadi minorities uh, in Algeria and Tunisia. So Gellner used the Weberian uh, analysis of the relationship. he makes a parallel with the, the the verbal analysis of the relationship between Protestantism and capitalism. And he links uh, Ibali's wealth and economic uh, dynamism with their specific uh, religious creed doctrines. Uh, so as for me, rather than asking whether the principles and the internal logic of Ibalism are compatible or not with capitalism, I explore the social and economic background of uh, Islamic scholars, of ulema, um, and I focus on the mutual and dynamic relationship between religious and economic activity. I demonstrate uh, that, that the relationship between uh, a growing ibadi economic elite and a rising reformist ulema during the first half of the 20th century is the best I think the best explanation for the wealth of uh, elites, from, of Mizabi traders in the colonial context, but also a very good explanation to understand the religious change. Uh, so, the integration of the region in the globalized market economy uh, facilitated the emergence of reformist religious forms, uh, which in turn favored and legitimated the Mizabi commitment to. Colonial capitalism. So, this is a very dialectic relation. Um, so, socio economic changes led to the transformation of religious knowledge, of the aim and the law. Uh, Reformist ulema had a discourse about the economy, about uh, e- commercial practices, techniques, and they adapted uh, to the to the Well, they adapted this discourse to the entry into the global economy. Uh, So this way they favored and legitimated the integration of um, Zab into Algerian territory and colonial capitalism. Uh, Yeah, and in return, so the the new economic elite uh, helped the reformists. They funded their activities, their schools, their associations. And so this... um, the, the rapid economic changes also led to the decline of the old and old, uh, institutions uh, on which the power of conservatives uh, laid or was based so i think uh, that as uh, intellectual historians we also have to take seriously these uh, economic factors to well to understand the, the changes
0: that's great and uh, that's i think that's an important argument in your narrative, the Mazab seems to encounter various majorities. There's the Maliki majority of Algeria, as well as the emerging Algerian nation. How do these relationships work?
1: Well, it's a, it's a very compli- complicated, complex issue. Um, I, I try to to study it uh, by uh, on being cautious to distinguish uh, different scales. So. What happens at the local scale, the regional scale, the national one uh, it's very different, so the prevailing narrative uh, especially in uh, local nationalist views, is that ibadis who have been uh, who had been for centuries a marginalized and persecuted minority um, have fought for the independence of uh, Algeria during the colonial period, and that's making this sacrifice uh they they gained a legitimate place in the nation. Uh, At the same time, uh, they they would have been also uh, accepted, uh, welcomed uh, by the Sunni majority as a fifth uh, madhab, as a fifth school of the Sunni Islam. So this is quite linear. and My interpretation is very different because by paying attention to different scales, I saw something very different. Uh, so first of all, uh, let me take the, the, the larger scale, so the regional scale. If you look at, mid, at the regional scale, it is clear that Ibadi scholars uh, from uh, Cairo, Tunis, Algiers uh, made attempts from the 1910s onward to, towards ta- taqrib, a rapprochement uh, with the Sunni majority. Um, So the the main actor in this uh, Islamic ecumenism was uh, Abu Ishaq Tfayesh, the the one I talked about, who was in exile in Cairo, and who wrote several articles, especially in uh, al fath so the journal of Muhammed Al-Khatib, in which he reinterpreted the the history of Ibalism, the first centuries, uh, in order to fit into a Sunni narrative. So if you just look at this scale, okay, yeah, there seems to be a rapprochement, uh, but it's really only from the point of view of a very um, offshore intellectual history. Uh, at an Algerian scale, uh, here again, Ibadi scholars uh, who settled in the north with the tra- trading diaspora also took part in the effort to unify Algerians facing French colonialism. Uh, So, at this scale, you see another discourse. It's not so much about Ibadism, but it's more uh, that they try to uh, reinterpret the past, the the Berber identity, um, in order to fit into an Arabic uh, uh, nationalist uh, narrative. So, the idea that um, among all the... uh, the different population who invaded uh, North Africa, uh, Berbers, got along, sorry, with, uh, only with Arabs, and forming, thanks to Islam, uh, a national community. So there again, you see several articles uh, in newspapers, journals, who have been written by these scholars. But also, I saw these scholars campaigning. Uh, so as activists, they acted together with Sunni leaders, especially from the Jama'at al 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 so the association of the uh, Algerian Muslims' Ulema, which was the main reformist Sunni uh, association. Uh, but if you look, sorry, it's a bit long, but at a local scale, uh, in Zab itself, uh, it's very different. It departs radically from what intellectual historians analyze. So in the valley, the Ibalis form a majority And they tend to exclude and discriminate local uh, Arab-speaking Malikis, as well as Jews. So I won't uh, go deep into details here. But in chapter 5, I analyze an episode which occurred in 1930, during which Ibadis uh, prevented Sunnis from calling to prayer outside their mosque in Zab. And it made a terrible mess in the valley, but also elsewhere in the country. And uh, I show how it uh, jeopardized the scholar's attempt at a rapprochement at the Taqrib. So so it's really interesting because we have three uh, scales, three attitudes, which seem contradictory. And I think and I argue that they express the various way uh, one could make use of religious and racial affiliations in uh, different struggles. So claiming such or such uh, identification gives you uh, access to such or such uh, uh, good, or it gives you uh, such rights. Uh, so I think uh, it's quite important to scrutinize the, the social and the political underpinning of uh, intellectual debate if you want to really understand what's at stake and to break away with very um, linear uh and a bit theological uh, narratives.
0: The final chapter of your book examines post-independence Algeria. How have Mazabi's experienced the post-independence period?
1: Um, well, that's uh, that's very, that's rich. Uh, it's only a, a small chapter at the end of the book, uh, uh, and I think uh, there is a lot of work to. That remains uh, there's that is still to, to be done uh, on it. Uh, s- several PhD topics. Uh, so, the, the is from the Mzab Valley have, um, I, I argue, that they have had to pay the price for uh, this identity, the end, un- this unresolved identitarian debates that I just talked about. Uh, so, all these debates about. Ibadism, Berber, identity that were unresolved at the end of the colonial period. Um, So, yeah, and one can at the same time say that they also uh, made a very interesting use of uh, their political experience during the colonial period in order to navigate the new regime. So there is a strong post-colonial aspect to that. So let's maybe make it clearer. So the Algerian uh, state, the independent state, does not recognize Ibadism as an official uh, sect, or Ibadism as a community. Uh, So this is the exact opposite of French colonial politics, which uh, promoted sectarianism, uh, ethnic differences. Uh, And so there is this very unitarian uh, framework. And as a consequence, uh, Ibadis institutions, Ibadis schools, Ibadis associations, uh, and even the power of Ibadis over the Mzab Valley, their home uh, country, uh, have first been apparently threatened on the eve of independence. But, uh, and that's really interesting to to observe this process, Uh, so... the the reformist scholars, so the first generation I I talked about uh, earlier, Um, so they had come to power at the end of the colonial period, uh, and they managed to secure and control uh, the integration of their community into this new Algerian framework, even if uh, this framework ignored them. So what I show is that they used their networks of influence, so lots of connections they had with uh, nationalist reformists since the interwar period. Uh, And through complex negotiations, they have managed to maintain many of the IBADI uh, institutions, many IBADI specificities, um, but always in an informal way, which leaves them quite exposed. So it's fragile. But there is an, a balance. Uh, but sometimes the balance is broken, especially uh, so you you can have uh, so some riots have occurred quite often since the nineteen eighties, uh, and especially at, at the end of my main field works. Uh, so in two thousand thirteen, so between two thousand thirteen and fifteen, I mentioned. To fo- I forgot sorry to mention it earlier, but of course it. Um, it led me to stop doing fieldwork for a while, uh, but uh, lots of riots between religious and racial groups occurred in the Mzab Valley. But once again, I think, uh, so I haven't studied this uh, very closely, but I think that once again, uh, uh, using a, a very local approach gives a very different uh, result than using a, a national one. So, yeah, well. If someone wants to study it, I think there is, it's a very interesting uh, piece.
0: I'm sure uh, listeners will be interested to hear about what you've got planned now that this book is, is published. Uh, what's your next project?
1: Um, so uh, I'm, I'm currently on the verge of finishing a collective project. Uh, I started... Uh, but well, at the end of the PhD in 2015 with a few colleagues. So this is on the history of uh, colonial orientalism uh, uh, in North Africa, so academic orientalism. Uh, so this is a project ba- based on an incredible archive, so the, the private archive of uh, René Basset, who, so he was uh, the main Arabist and Barbarist uh, at the University of Algiers. He died in uh, 1924, and uh, Algiers actually is a very interesting case because it was the only French university in the the empire, so outside of uh, French metropole. So we have uh, uh, maybe 20,000, 30,000 letters. It's really an incredible opportunity to see... um, how Orientalist uh, disciplines uh, grew in this colonial fieldwork field sorry uh, context uh, to see this uh, Orientalism in the making and also to see the role played by Algerians and other North Africans in it. So we we work we worked on it with many MA and grad students for so for five years uh, in a seminar and uh, so we are writing a book together with students and. Uh, Uh, now colleagues, so grad students. Uh, It's a very rich pedagogical and scientific experience. And I also now I'm starting uh, a personal project. Uh, Well, as you know, from the 1830s onwards, uh, when French uh, took over Algiers and gradually planned to, to control the whole country, So they they not uh, not only did they repress, uh, dispossessed, killed uh, Algerians, but they also stole books and dismantled uh, local libraries. Uh, So it was a a, a huge cultural uh, looting, and it has it had uh, important consequences in Algeria, but also on the composition of present uh, days French libraries. Uh, so, I'm, um, I'm, my, my research project is precisely about these uh, stolen, dismantled, reshaped libraries, and more broadly about the transformation of book culture between the pre-colonial period and the post-colonial period in the in the Maghreb. Uh, so, during this uh, long period, uh, the art of producing, purchasing. Writing, collecting, reading books underwent major changes. Uh, so, from the implementation of uh, printing press in Arabic to the rise of modernized, uh, centralized administrations, which aimed at uh, regulating uh, culture and libraries. Uh, so that's the that's the, the question I want to I want to study now. It's the Yeah, the the history of uh, libraries and books in the 19th and 20th century, and especially linking uh, books and uh, colonial violence, uh, books and uh, economic change also. Uh, So I would like to see what was the, uh, well, the impact of these uh, changes, the intellectual, cultural impact uh, on the uh, literate culture in North Africa.
0: Well, look forward to reading some of that that work uh, in the coming years. Thanks, Julian. Augustine, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about your book.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank
0: you.